This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. And I think we can all agree that the past few years have truly shaken up the workplace. We've been jostled into a different way of thinking about work and working, especially when it comes to what we think of leadership and how we want to conduct ourselves as leaders. On the line with me today to bust through the absurdities is Paul Glover. He's a C-suite performance coach and author of WorkQuake, making the seismic shift to a knowledge economy. Well, thank you so much, Christine. It's wonderful to be with you and to be able to address your audience. Uh, and you've uh, given them the uh, the snapshot. I'm an executive coach. I do C-suite coaching. Uh, I call myself the no BS uh, workplace legacy coach uh, because that's how I coach. And yeah, I wrote the book uh, WorkQuake actually 10 years ago. And I pat myself on the back for being prescient uh, the concepts of WorkWake about how work environment is changing out of necessity, not because people want it to change, especially management, but because there's no choice. Uh, the great resignation, of course, is a symbol of that change that's taking place. So the WorkWake was born of the recognition that the work environment and employment was going to change. Uh, and in within the book, it talks about what leaders are going to have to do to remain relevant be able to keep an engaged and productive workforce. Absolutely, absolutely. Totally agree with that. I mean, we really have seen this massive shakeup of how we look at work. And what is interesting to me is that in the intro for your book, you also acknowledge that its contents aren't for everybody. This approach isn't for everybody, uh, including those who still believe in the days of command and control and those who are not committed to improvement. And it's sad to say, but there are so many people out there, even with, you know, all of these phenomena that you are describing, that still do think like that. They still are fascinated or nostalgic for command and control and they are not committed to changing or not even think, you know, they assume that they're doing just fine right now. I mean, why do you think there are still people out there who think like this? Well, first, I, I think that command and control is an industrial age mindset. And so the, the concept of knowledge work and the information uh, society are brand new. We're looking at 20 to 30 years. So this concept of command and control has been in place since World War II. When people came back, the, the men who turned into managers and owners had learned how the army did it. And the army did everything by exactly that. They gave a command, no one questioned it, they just did it. So that's the style that was brought back from World War II and has stayed in place. So that industrial mindset uh, is deeply rooted and also it's the easiest way to manage. You don't have to uh, actually listen to anybody tell you anything that you don't want to hear uh, because the mantra is, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And that's how managers operate. So what we've seen, of course, is the, uh, the pandemic rattled everybody's cage, turned it upside down, and suddenly caused the employees who've never had the upper hand to realize that they did not have to continue to accept command and control when they, in fact, were the ones that needed to be engaged to do the work. So the knowledge economy has suddenly broken the rules. But, but, but let's be real clear about this. You're right about nostalgia. Uh, I, I still think that 80% of managers want to return to pre-pandemic ways. Uh, command and control is easy. Uh, and by the way, uh, 
But what we have, of course, I think symbolic of that is the opposition to work from home. When the research shows clearly that productivity is higher in most cases for knowledge workers who work at home. It's more convenient. You don't have the commute. We all know the benefits. And yet Elon Musk sent out a tweet that everyone was expected to be in the office for 40 hours or more or pretend you're working at another company. So, so the reality is that's where we want to go. Uh, also, the, the concept of how we're going to interact as employee and employer is undergoing a transformation from to, to shareholders, from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, which means that you start to treat employees as if they were stakeholders. Uh, that, that has met with a lot of opposition because up until now, it's been everything works for the benefit of the shareholder or the owner of the, uh, of the means of production. So we're going through a, a workquake. Uh, the work environment is going to be different. But the concept that irritates me the most is that management knows the right words to say, and they do. The problem is when we start looking at relationships with employees, it founders on one irrefutable fact. Employers don't believe employees will work unless they can see them. That's why 78% of all companies have put spyware on the work computer that's in the home. So how are we supposed to, as employees, say we, we, have a, we have a relationship of trust and engagement when, in fact, you don't trust us to do the work without spying on us? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I really agree with that discrepancy and that hypocritical nature of a lot of companies who claim to, you know, we really want to keep in touch with our employees. We are honest, we're transparent, and then they install spyware on their employees' computers. And it's completely, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And, you know, I think that going into a little bit about disengagement as well, I think it really does boil down to that in, in that lack of trust. And it's funny because we have gone through the pandemic. Uh, you know, I understand that working from home is not necessarily the best solution for everybody or every industry. You know, no one is saying that. No one is saying that there is a panacea for anything, right? There's no one size fits all cure for anything here. But it has clearly, like you said, been proven that people who can work from home in industries where they are allowed to work from home and they have the resources to work from home are doing fine. They're doing just fine. You know, there's not, there's no problem here. Um, so I think where I want to go here is, you know, what are some blind spots that leaders have that leads to this level of disengagement and leads to this, you know, distrust in their own employees? Like, why are you running a company with people that you don't even trust in the first place, I guess? But by the way, that's always one of, when I take on a new coaching client, we have that conversation about if you're not willing to change, grow, and treat your employees as partners in the business, because they are, uh, why do you have them working for you at all? Because obviously you can't trust them, so you should fire them and hire people you can trust. And the reality is, of course, that that's absurd. Uh, but, but it's still the truth that you have to have reciprocity in any relationship. And the employee-employer is, is a relationship. Gallup has been keeping engagement uh, surveys for the last 20 years. And the level of engagement has never gone up beyond 30%. And what, what, what do you do with that information except say we need to change? But by the way, 
one of the magic words is engagement, right? Everyone wants their workforce engaged, except for the fact that they're not going to do anything to engage people. They're going to continue to treat them as if they were serfs, cogs in the machine. I know people say, well, it's not that way. Really, it is that way. That's why we have the great resignation. People leave, and, and we always like to think they're leaving for money. And by the way, money matters. If you get a tremendous offer, you're obviously going to take it. It could be life-changing. But let's be realistic. The research continues to show that employees leave because they don't like the company. They don't like the toxic environment. They certainly don't like their supervisor or manager. They have no autonomy. They have no flexibility. And they want more than that now. The one thing that the, that the pandemic gave us was the opportunity to reflect on our lives and to realize that we're spending a third plus of our lives in a workplace environment that we detest. People are willing to now leave and search for something better. You know, we, we obviously, again, another one of these words that everybody mouths is purpose. Right? Everybody should have a purpose. And by the way, I firmly believe that. But, but you can't have purpose if you can't be comfortable or relate to or be engaged in your work. If you are told you will do exactly what I tell you to do and no more, you are nothing but one of the working dead. You show up, you collect your paycheck, you go home. You'll never be engaged. Therefore, the discretionary effort that every company looks for will never be forthcoming because you cannot buy discretionary effort. You have to earn it through the relationship. You know, that's really funny. And this is a, a point I've brought up on Razor Game, I think several times over by now, but it is very fascinating to me that people are surprised when people are like, hey, I spend at least five days a week out of my seven days a week in this place working with these people. And I want to be treated like a human being five days out of the week, <laughs> you know, and, and that's surprising to people. That's still something that boggles the mind where it's where on a very base level, people are now just like, I refuse to work for a place that doesn't treat me like a human person and treats me like a tool. And and I think that is something that, you know, the pandemic, again, like you said, it's really shaking things up. It's really allowed us to reprioritize. You know, there was this, I guess, narrative before of like, I have to make the sacrifice so that I can continue to earn a living. So I continue to live my life. And, and you know, but I think there's a, another thing of um, how a lot of people say work-life balance. And it's not, it shouldn't really be a balance. Work is a part of life, right? It's, it's something that is intrinsically a part of life and you should just be treated like a human being throughout your life. I mean, this is, you know, very basic. But um, moving on from that, right, you, I know you're a huge proponent of sort of the power of storytelling. We'll definitely get into that a little bit uh, after the break as well. But how can a leader or, you know, uh, how can a leader use storytelling and the power of storytelling to reduce disengagement? How can they use that to actually get their employees engaged and actually start this journey of like, look, we actually want you to believe in what we do here. Well, first, you're actually correct about uh, I am a strong advocate of persuasive storytelling. Uh, as a trial attorney, I found very quickly that telling the jury the facts would never win a case for my client. They needed to become emotionally engaged. And the way that you emotionally engage a jury or a workforce is you invite them to come along on a journey. A journey, I, and by the way, Joseph Campbell came out with the hero's journey. 
And I believe that every company needs to understand that that hero's journey provides those who go along with the journey purpose. And you invite them along. You give them the resources so they want to be there. You treat them as fellow travelers and you work together to achieve a goal, an end, whatever that may be. And so the only way that that happens is if the leader can tell a persuasive story. One of the first stories is always about the founding of the business. Because we want people to understand what this business is about. We want them to know uh, if their ethics are going to align with our ethics, if purpose is going to be purpose for them and for us. And we have to invite them to join us. Uh, we also have to tell them the truth. Uh, you can't have a hero's journey without adversity. If, it, if Red Riding Hood did not meet the wolf, it would just be a pleasant walk in the woods. So you don't tell people it's going to be wonderful and there's not going to be problems. In fact, you are very honest and transparent with them. And this is where we get to vulnerability because leaders have got to stop believing that they are infallible. And if you talk about the hero's journey, a part of that hero's journey is talking about how you have not only succeeded, but how you have failed. Because once you are willing to admit failure, people start to see you differently. They see you as vulnerable, they see you as authentic, and you suddenly become attractive for, uh, from a leadership point of view to followers. So, so the concept of telling the story, the persuasive story, is where you actually engage people on an emotional level that makes them want to come along on the journey, want to be engaged. A hundred percent. We are not invested in Harry Potter story if he doesn't live in a cupboard under the stairs when we first meet him. Right. So truly, you know, I think you really hit the nail on the head and that vulnerability and that authenticity is really striking a nerve with a lot of people right now. We do, however, have to take a short break for some messages. So uh, do stay tuned to Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Law and I'm speaking to Paul Glover, author of Workquake, making the seismic shift to a knowledge economy here on BFM 89.9. Boring, fake, macho. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. your game. I'm Christine Wong and on the line with me today is Paul Glover. He is a C-suite performance coach, a former trial attorney and also author of Workquake, making the seismic shift to a knowledge economy. Before the break, we talked a little bit about why people are still so invested in the command and control narrative and the importance of controlling your own narrative and the power of persuasive storytelling when it comes to keeping your employees engaged. Uh, from here, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the book ever so slightly. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be helpful at this point in time. Uh, in the book, essentially, it's based on your two newsletters. You've got two running newsletters. One is called Morning Mantra. One is called The Bottom Line. And we've uh, before the break, we were sort of touching on a lot of bottom line uh, subjects, right? Because bottom line has to do with the operational performance. Um, so we were talking about employee engagement. We're talking about storytelling, talking about what the knowledge economy even is. And uh, Morning Mantra, though, has to do a little bit with personal personal productivity. And before we get into, you know, a little bit uh, more detail about that, talk to me a little bit about the impact that shaping your personal productivity and your personal development, you know, has on the way that you approach your professional development as well. Well, I, and 
the morning mantra is again uh, 10 years ago was ahead of its time i actually told my editor i said nobody's going to read this book because nobody's ready to read this book the morning mantra is about the most important element for from a leader's perspective and that's self-care and leaders have got to acknowledge the need for self-care and then they have to be the model for everyone on their team and their in organization for self-care because if they aren't it does not cascade down and so we looked in the morning mantra i did in the morning mantra about the things that constituted self-care and i looked to myself because i truly believe that if you're going to coach and you have a program you better be able it's your program you better be able to actually acknowledge that you've gone through it that you that you live your life by it and so yeah i i start off with every one of my clients requiring that they keep a wellness journal on a daily basis uh one of the things they're required to do and by the way i i'm very clear about this i'm the no bs workplace legacy coach uh only 20 percent of those people who come to me actually end up in my coaching program because it's tough. Leadership is tough, self-care is tough, succeeding is tough. And the reality is that if you don't take care of yourself in three different areas, you're not gonna be a good leader. The first is you have to exercise. Physicality is required. What someone once said, we're a meat sack with a brain. Uh, and, and we've got to acknowledge that and say, take care of your body because if you don't, your body will get even. So we, we have to exercise. I'm a gym rat. I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I go to the gym. I then walk in the woods. Uh, there's actually a, a great Japanese uh, concept called forest washing. Uh, if you have a woods next to you, uh, I found that by walking through the woods, there's a very calming effect. It's de-stressing you. And leaders today, especially because of the pandemic, not only have their own stress, but they take on the stress of the team. Part of what you do, you try to de-stress others. How do you dissipate that stress makes a decision about how you're going to be able to perform. So obviously the exercise and, and the forest washing uh, or meditation or journaling uh, is going to help you get rid of stress. Second thing is eating. You have to recognize that eating poorly, drinking to excess. And the final one is not getting enough sleep destroys your ability to not only perform, but make sure that everybody who reports to you recognize that your bad habits can be their bad habits. So the concept is you have to, you have to obey the certain rules of leadership if you truly want to be a leader. You don't want to be a leader, ignore them all. Yeah, I think that is really important. And, you know, one thing that really resonated with, with me uh, that you said was self-care is tough. I mean, there, I think there's this big misconception about self-care uh, that's still happening nowadays where people just think, uh, you uh, put on a face mask and you just relax and that's self-care. I mean, technically, that's like that's a form of self-care. That's just de-stressing, you know, but it's not as simple as that. This self-care is part of your routine. Self-care is making sure that, you know, if you're if you're looking at your body like a machine, it's maintenance for the machine. Right. Like you wouldn't drive your car if it didn't get maintained or serviced on a regular basis. Why would you drive your body in the same way? And it's funny um, as well. The other part of that is this whole. Uh, idea that, you know, ah, like, what what would that have to do with anything? Uh, but physical health and mental health are so inextricably intertwined. And that's really what you're talking about here. It all connects, right? Taking care of yourself 
and making sure that you are in a place where you are physically well, that also makes it easier for you to be mentally well. And then that in turn affects the kind of impact that you have on other people because, you know, and and I'll say this right now. Uh, I'm not a gym rat at all. Like, I'm completely the opposite of you. I love uh, sleeping in. I love eating. All that jazz. But it's all about trying to find a balance in your life. And it's all about trying to at least get some kind of movement, trying to at least, you know, if you can't be, you know, totally on that end of the spectrum, at least work your way towards something that is a bit healthier, right? Like, I still try my best to take, like, walks, you know, outside. I still try my best to, you know, when I do eat, you know, if I have a snack, like, I don't go to excess, you know. It's like the moderation part of that journey, I think, is really important to note. Um, But definitely, I think that it's funny you know we often uh, again go back to this narrative of oh I have to sacrifice um, my personal uh, needs you know for the greater good of like the professional needs so like I have to not get enough sleep because I need to stay up working on an assignment uh, you know I don't have time to have a proper lunch so I'm gonna go uh, grab some fast food like all these thoughts but in reality what you're actually doing is sabotaging yourself honestly right uh, at that point well, absolutely. And by the way, one size does not fit all. You you do need to select how you want to live your life to your fullest. I'm about potential. Uh, and and let me tell you that first, I believe that health is holistic. It isn't one facet. There are many facets to it. And just because I've got a routine that works for me doesn't mean that it works for anybody or everybody. But I do know that for leaders, it is very important for two things. First, you have to commit to something. And then you need to turn it into a routine because routines create discipline. Discipline creates opportunity. If you don't do that, well, and by the way, I see, I look at, and what I say, normal people, if you're not a, if you're an employee and you're happy, I'm happy for you. If you're a leader, your obligation goes beyond yourself. You are to serve others. And, and I know there are leaders who hate that. Why should I have to serve? Because you're the leader. <laughs> I'm sorry, it goes with the definition. So suddenly you're under the spotlight all the time. And everyone watches you, whether you think they do or they don't, they do. Uh, and you want to be the type of leader that people do look to, to understand how they should behave in the culture, whatever that culture is. And I, I you know, when you look at Uber, Uber had a terrible leader. By the way, he's not a leader anymore. Why? At some point, that burns everybody out. It ruins the company. Uh, so, so when I talk about this, I do put leaders in a special slot. And I go, you need to make the sacrifice so that you make a difference. And if you're not willing to do that, step aside. No one's forcing anybody to lead. We do this by choice. And once you've made the choice, there's responsibility connected to that choice. That requires that you look at how you do what you do through the prism of the impact on other people. I also love that you've highlighted something that I really believe in, which is, look, not everybody has to be a leader. Uh, I think that's something that is also it. It is quite funny to me because there is a lot of talk of like, you know, self-leadership. And I do think that is important for any individual person. But also 
if everyone's a leader, who's who are they leading? I, I mean, that is really something that I I do find quite funny in this sort of day and age with, with the conversations around leadership, um, where you know it's not it's not for everyone, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, that's number one, and number two, I think, is another thing that you brought up is you know the routine, the discipline, and the the impact that you have on other people when they learn from you. That's also part of storytelling. That's actually part of how you're controlling your own personal narrative. And that is also how you develop your personal brand. Uh, you know, that is all part of making sure that your personal structures are in place. Because I think people can sort of tell when someone has a very chaotic base in life, I think, you know, and that does carry through to the way that they might manage their team or the way that they might treat uh, adversity, you know. And when you have that routine, when you have that structure and that discipline, and that really centers you as a person, I think that allows you to tell your story better. And as a result, when you are so full of clear purpose, that also drives your company to better heights as well. Well, well and you're spot on with us. So, so everyone has a very good BS antenna and they will smell it out. So, so guess what? Uh, you, you need to be honest and authentic. The concept of being a leader is to convince other people that they should go on this journey with you. And I, I believe there's there's three, the three A's matter here. The first one is attraction. You need as a leader not to be physically attractive, but to have put the energy to attract others, the positivity to attract others, the vulnerability, the authenticity to attract others to you and your cause. So they want to be with you and join you on this journey not as somebody that they work for, but someone they work with. The second of the three A's is they need some attention. Everyone craves attention and leaders are required to give it. They, we, we, we crave that recognition. We crave that as being involved and engaged and leaders have to give that. And it's extraordinary to me how few leaders wanna do that. They don't believe it's a part of their job. They think that everyone who gets paid should be happy being there. They're not. That's not purpose. Money is not purpose. And the third A is we need appreciation. How about saying thank you? I, I, it's just, again, extraordinary to me how difficult that is for leaders to do. Think about this. We're sitting in a restaurant. We ask someone for a shaker of salt. They pass it to us. We say thank you. At the end of a week in the pandemic, when it was a terrible five days and everybody was getting ready to go home, you know what a leader would say? See you next week. Now that's like an invitation back to Hades. Nobody, nobody wants to do that. Instead, why not say, I really appreciate the fact that you were here during this turbulent, chaotic, dangerous time and stayed with me as we proceeded to explore our purpose and our journey. That's appreciation. The three A's lock people in. Attraction, attention, appreciation. And yet leaders have, it, it is such a simple formula, but we complicate it to death. I absolutely love that. Unfortunately, that is all about all the time we have for today's chat. But thank you so much, uh, Paul, for speaking to us uh, all about work quick and shaking the workplace up, really. Christine, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you and to your audience. It's been a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. I've been speaking to Paul Glover, C-suite performance coach and author of Work Quake, making the seismic shift to a knowledge economy. If you missed any of today's show, you can go ahead and download our app. Our app is available on both the Apple App Store and Google Play. And you can listen to our podcast online, offline, anywhere in the world. You can also head over to bfm.my to listen back to the podcast as well. This is BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.